Good morning. Welcome to Warehouse. Good to have you here. If you're here and you have questions any point during the service, there's a card nearby you called the Power of Hope, and it's called our, it's our, our connecting card. And if there's any information you want, questions, thoughts, wonderings, about anything at all, anytime during the service, it's there for you to fill it out, put whatever contact information you want, and then you can uh, either put it in our offering basket when it comes around later on in our service, or you can put it in one of the yellow boxes hanging on the wall, one's in that room and one's right over there. This week, at, uh, we're finishing our series entitled The Power of Hope. It's been an 11-week series looking at a short letter in the New Testament, the letter to the Colossians. And uh, we finish today. And as we finish, we finish in one of those places which is, uh, let's be honest, there, there are things you're supposed to read which you skip and meetings and parts of it that you walk out of because you just think it's kind of perfunctory. The end of the book has that feel to it. You first, seriously, your first look at it, it's, it's pretty long, a pretty long section where basically it looks like the guy's saying, hey, see you, hey, no, good to talk to you. It's like the end of a meeting where, you know, he's glad-handing everybody and there's a little bit of personal connotation. It's like, whatever. And you feel like I can just skip through that. However, it is almost an entire chapter. And there is a subtext there. And there's something extremely important for how we live out hope. We have said in this series that often we understand the power of hopelessness very well. When we lose hope in something, we give up. We lose steam, we lose motivation. But what we've said is, by contrast, what the Bible pictures for us is this thing that God promises is not simply, you know, I'll forgive you and you can get to go to heaven someday, but there's a concrete reality that has changed in our lives that gives us power to live our lives. And as we moved into this last section, we said one of the things we can do is allow us to finish well whether it's finish a, a task well, finish a relationship well, finish our life well. It allows us to finish well, to stay pressing forward. And as we get to the very end of that, it's interesting, the writer, who's a guy named Paul, the writer begins to give us some very practical sort of add-ons. Living in hope is important. Here are some practical things you can do. Not that the hope will be true. The hope that Christ gives anybody who comes in is true, but that you'll live in that, that you'll live and rest and let that empower your life. And so today, is, as we come to the last week, is one of those extremely important externals that allows us to live in hope. If it's the last week, then we must be coming to the first week. And so we do begin a new series next week, and it's called Stake in the Ground. And what this is is three things that I'd like to say. Three things that I think, after having been a Christian for 35 years, three things, I became a Christian when I was negative four. That's, you know, that's how it works. Three things that are, you know I like to say the question below the question, three things that are at the, at the deep core of what it means to be a child of God and to live that out. If you've listened to me long, you, you will probably not be surprised by the topics. If you haven't, you probably will because they don't on first blush appear to be uh, intuitively the center points. I, I think they are. I'm not saying these are the three central things, but these are three critical things. If you give me an opportunity to talk about something that's deeply formative about who we are and how we live, I want to talk about these three things. That'll be starting next week. I encourage you to be here um, as we begin that series. Okay, so today, as we, as we launch into this um, last talk, the, the band's going to play a tong, song called Solitaire by Wilco. And if you're anywhere near my age, you hear the word solitaire and song, and Karen Carpenter is in your head. And what I asked the band to do last service is get it out of my head, which they'll do. 
because Wilco's song is surprisingly better than Karen Carpenter's song, Solitaire. But what the song does is it frames a concept that I think is really important. We say things too easily sometimes and forget the difficulties involved with anything. This is a sort of a, a powerful thought in this one stanza about the nature of relationships. As the author that pits himself against what he sees in the world, people firing at, trying to get deeper into relationships, and he's saying, it's kind of all crazy. This song illustrates the love-hate relationship that we have with relationships. Welcome to Warehouse. And yet... Maybe surprisingly, I was an acolyte when I was growing up at a Methodist church, and uh, for about a year, my parents made me go to church to be confirmed. And in that church, what you did is you went to a uh, class for like, oh, it probably wasn't a year. I, you know, in my head, uh, it seemed like 10 years. It was probably six weeks, honestly. It wasn't a year. It was probably six weeks. just seemed longer at the time. And at the end of that, you get to be an acolyte, which if you're not in, in any sort of formal church, you, you wear a robe and you sit in the back, at least in my church, you sit in the back behind where the organ and stuff are. And, and what you do, you got a two-sided metal contraption, and one side has a wick, which you push forward, and you light the candles, you know, right at the beginning of the service. And then you walk back and sit there for a long time. And then you go out at, toward the end of the service, and you have the other end, which is like a little cup, and you snuff out all the candles, you know, and then you're done. Now, candles get snuffed out not because of pressure. They get snuffed out because there's no oxygen. When oxygen is taken away from fire, it can't live. It, it dies in isolation from oxygen. To me, it, to, it, it, it helps me to think about isolation and what's necessary and when things get snuffed out. And so here's the core of what I'm going to say to you is this. Hope dies in isolation. Isolation kills hope. Deprive people of other people and hope can't, it, it can't live. It's like fire without oxygen. Uh, Evan, my, my oldest son, and I watched a movie a little while back. It's, it's called Old Boy. It's a Korean movie. And so I'm relatively confident most of you have not seen it. It's uh, a fascinating movie, and I'm not going to tell you the whole thing because it's dark and depressing. And uh, yeah. But in the beginning, what happens is you realize this is this guy who's been kidnapped, abducted, and he has been placed inside a, uh, it's either an apartment or hotel room. It's, it's not nice. It's hard to tell what it is. But he lives there for 15 years. He has no idea why he's been taken, who took him, and all he his only human contact is a relatively poor TV and then food shoved under the door. He doesn't see anybody live for 15 years. And the movie does a particularly good job of showing what craziness what dementia, really, that breeds into a person. The guy acts it out brilliantly. No contact, no human contact for 15 years. We don't do well in isolation. That, that, that's different than getting alone time. You all know this. You can be isolated in a crowd. We don't do well in isolation, but one of the things that isolation snuffs out is hope. So, in this passage, at the end of this letter, we're going to walk through this relatively long section where Paul appears to just be saying, hey, how you doing? But he's not. He's framing a very important con concept about relationships and why they matter and uh, their importance and hope. So I'm going to read through that, and then we're going to walk through it, and then I'm going to tell you a, a point. Here's what it says. 
Tychicus, a dear brother, faithful minister, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are doing and that he may encourage your hearts. I sent with him Onesimus, the faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, to send, also sends greetings. In terms of Jewish converts, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. He is always struggling in prayer on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I can testify that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters who are in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in our house. And after you have read this letter, have it read to the church of Laodicea. In turn, read the letter from Laodicea as well and tell Archippus. See to it that you complete the ministry you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay, see, it's kind of long. It's almost a whole chapter devoted to what appeared to be, hey, how you doing? And let's walk it through. Paul is in prison, and he's in prison for telling other people about Jesus, and there's a whole sorts of reasons why that's so, which honestly don't matter at all. But he's in prison, and... In prison, he sends this letter out to the people in, in, in Colossae, and he's told them all sorts of things that are important about their life and has encouraged them about hope. And in the end of this, then he launches into these greetings. I'm going to read verses 7 8 again. Tychicus, a dear brother, faithful minister, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I send him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are doing and that he may encourage your hearts. I send with him Onesimus, the faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. So here's what happened. Paul wrote a letter, and he gives it to two guys to carry it because there's no postal service. He gives it to two guys to carry it to them. And so what he says is, I sent you this letter, and here's the content I wanted you to have, but I also sent you two guys. And the reason I sent you these two guys is that you can get news about me. Now, once Paul tells these people the news about him, everything about his situation will change. That's a lie. Nothing will change. Absolutely nothing. He'll remain in prison with the same sense of circumstantial hope that he had before. So why does it matter so much that they know how he is doing? See, it's not going to be a great conversation in terms of pure fun. So how's Paul doing? Well, he's not, it's not, like, he's not like in a minimum security where they play basketball and he lifts weights and he's get a second law degree. He's in a Roman prison living a very Spartan existence with no real hope, circumstantially, of ever getting out. So, how's Paul doing? They are not going to say, great, we got some real prospects. You know, we got a new lawyer, because the last one, you know, was crap. We got a new lawyer, and he's really making some headway here, and they've given him some new liberties. He's in a bad Roman prison. So, why is he sharing these, this news? Why is it so important? Why does he say it twice? Why is he emphasizing it? Because the knowledge that other people are in my life with me matters. You know that phrase, my thoughts and prayers are with you? Seriously, what does that mean? My thoughts and prayers are with you. Did you box them up? Do you hand them to me? And then it's shorthanded now, like thoughts and prayers. Uh, and I, every time I hear that, I go, what, what are you talking about? My thoughts and prayers are with you. How exactly are they with me? 
Well, I think the phrase is nonsense. But the reason why it resonates at some level and why it's used so much is what it communicates is, I'm with you. I can't do any, because really, my th- I mean, you can make the argument that my prayers might actually have an effect, but my thoughts, you can make the argument that my thoughts has no effect on your situation. But the fact that you're thinking about me does. It affects something deeply within each one of us to know we're not in it alone. Even if our circumstances can't change, even if it's not going to get any better. And so Paul said, I want you in this with me. I really want you to know what my life is like. It's not going to be great, the the telling of this. There's nothing about it that's going to make your heart sore. But it's important to me, it matters to me, that you know what my life is like and you're in some way in spirit, you're with me. Paul, honestly, when you read the letters of Paul, you get the sense, for the most part, he's a tough guy. That's, that's sort of the impression you get. He appears to be somebody who, who's goal-oriented, focused on the task, let's get it done. At one point, he's going to refer to somebody who basically he cut off a relationship with because he didn't think they were really getting the job done well, and he couldn't count them, so he moved on because the task mattered more than the relationship. And yet, when you get to the end of several of his letters, he seems almost needy. This next section, he starts to list the people who are with him. And this is what he says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, that's the one he cut off before, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes, you welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. In terms of Jewish comforts, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God. This is all I got. All I got is these three guys. I got nobody else. In other letters, he makes it clear. He really says, like, seriously, all I have is this person, this person, this person, this person. I'm thinking, that's not bad. You got three. And then he lists more people. Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. All these people are with Paul. And then he's got uh, Luke, and he's got Demas, and he's got, all sor- he's got a gang. He's got a band of brothers. He's got a posse. Paul's got all sorts of people there with him. They've been sent there with him. They stay with him. He's got people. And yet, there's a certain part of him that even laments that. He, fe- he sounds needy to me. This is why I, th- why I think it's so. We tend to put biblical characters into a, a place that they're not. They're biblical characters as if they're like cardboard cutouts of some ideal model of humanity, and they're just not. They're just people. They're like you and me. They, they make mistakes, and they've got issues, and, and what you do is you can actually watch, if, if you get a, a guy like Paul, who you see a lot of, you can actually watch the progression of their life, and one of the things you see in Paul is that the tough guy, the human who tries to stand on his own, at some point decides... I need people. I need a lot of people. I need some people who are going to be with me. And so you see that, that learning he's come to across the years in his troubles and in his successes that in a certain sense, without a bunch of people around me, I don't, I don't know how I can do this. Because hope dies in isolation and it thrives in community. All right, then he goes on. I'm going to go to, what am I going to go to? I'm going to go to verse 13, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ, greets you. He's always struggling in prayer on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I can testify that he worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, when I first read that, I thought a couple things. There's two passages where it talks about working. And in the first one, it says he struggled in prayer. Okay, I kind of get that. You know, he's, he's, he's from their town. 
So Epaphras knows them. And so he, I, I get the sense that he's, he's praying for them consistently because he knows them. These are his friends, and he's, he's cut off from them. He's, de- he's separated from them because he's helping Paul. And so I get that part. But then it says he, he's worked hard for you and for those in two other cities. Exactly how? Exactly how has he worked hard for those people? What has he done? I think. I think this is what he's done. He has been the one who stood in the gap, who for in the place of and for the sake of these people that Paul knew elsewhere, he becomes the one who is the relational connectant. He bridges these people that Paul needs to know are with him and Paul. And so he worked hard to do that. He became one who had to represent a number of people because for Paul, the connection that his life was not out there on his own, that he was not playing solitaire mattered deeply. And so that somebody alongside him understood that and struggled to make the connections clear and present and powerful. Then he moves on. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters who are in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that are, meets in her house. And after you've read this letter, have it read to the church of Laodicea. In turn, read the letter from Laodicea as well. We don't, we don't know where that letter is. You know, we don't know. What I find interesting is that Paul says, okay, I'm sending you a letter. Send it to the church of Laodicea. And the one that they got, have them read it too. Why? I mean, I, I don't think it's just about information. Paul knows. He's learned. He's learned along the way the vital importance of being in community with other people. And so now what he's trying to do, he's actually trying to move these churches in connection with each other. He's doing things that require them to know each other and to know how each other's life are going and what they're learning so that they are placed in community with one another. You see, now he starts to live it out practically more than say, hey, y'all ought to get together. Y'all ought to you know, hang out together. He's actually making it so they have to. They're going to have to send emissaries to each other. They're going to have to spend some time together, and they're going to learn the very things that each one was being taught about the particular issues in their life. It's now gone from his own need to his realization that everybody must have relational connections or hope will die. Finally, in verse 18, it says this, I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. Now, it, all, it, all that means is most of his letters were uh, dictated. But for authenticity and a relational touch, he often would write the last couple of lines. I write, Paul, write this by my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I don't know why that matters to me. I really don't. Those last two phrases, every time I read them, there's something about them. There's, I think they're so pithy. They're so to the point. But remember my chains. Remember me. Don't, please don't forget me. I don't think he wants them to feel bad for him. I don't think by remember my chains, he wants to say, look, look at all I've done for you. I think what he's saying is just don't forget me. Remember me. We're in this together or we're not in it at all. Okay, so. 11, 12 verses devoted to greetings. Why? Because it's that important. Because unless you have some deep, meaningful connections with other people, hope will die. And as I've said all along the way, if you lose hope in insignificant things, after all, they're insignificant, so what? If you lose hope in things that matter, then things that matter are gone. 
And what Paul is emphasizing in a variety of different ways is, please do not try to live a life of hope by yourself. Because isolation kills hope. I actually don't know why. I only know that appears to be how we're hardwired. That without people around us, giving us that, that, that intangible sense that we are not by ourselves, we lose steam, we lose motiva- mo- motivation, we lose hope. So what does that mean? Let me be brutally honest. People are a pain, including me. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm a pain in the butt. And I, and I wish I was being self-deprecating. Yes, yes, people are nodding. <laughs> yeah. Have you met me? I, I'm difficult. It, it, people have to work to be in a relationship with me. I, I, I always know what you're going to say. I, trust me. Halfway through a sentence, I'll tell you what you're going to say. You know why? I'm always right. I always, so let's not waste time with you actually finishing your sentence. <laughs> Just let me do it and tell me what it means, and I'll move on to how we're going to deal with it. I don't listen well at all. I think it's because I already know what's right, and so I, I'm not sure why I need to listen to you. <laughs> do you know why? I'm forgetful. I'm so forgetful that I forget things that people say to me, maybe you don't care about me because you forget so much. I'm forgetful. These are my good qualities. <laughs> no, I mean, I've got others. I mean, I do, you know, I've got good qualities. A lot of you like me. <laughs> Look at that. But I've got, I mean, I'm a pain. I've got, I am difficult to be in relationship with, with, but quite honestly, so are you. You've got good qualities too, but you're difficult to be in relationship with. Every human being that walks this planet, we are like people, as one of my friends said, we're like people in a crowded airport with luggage and we're just banging into each other. We've got baggage. And so relationships are hard. So you look at this and Paul goes, oh yeah, we need to be in relationships. So I look and you go, hey, you need to be in a relationship. Okay, and then you actually go into relationship and relationships are hard because you and I are pains and we're difficult to get along with. And so this is the American way. We live superficially because, you know, you got to have people to hang out with. And so you can watch the championship game of American football, which I can't refer to as the Super Bowl party this afternoon here for, uh, because I'm not licensed to do so. And then you can drink beer. Not, not here. I'll explain that to you later, too. I'm just kind of stepping in it now. See, I just, anyway. And, and, you know, you can hang out and you can go to movies and stuff like that. And the American way is when the going gets tough, we, in relationships, we leave them if we can. If at all possible, we just bail. Because, you know, what do I do anyway? Right? If at all possible, I just, this is too hard. It's too much stress. I'm going to move out of that one. If we can't leave them, we just take a step back. This was the 1950s view of marriage. I'm not supposed to divorce you, so let's cohabitate. We'll talk occasionally about relatively meaningless things. So I tell you, being in a relationship, and relationships are difficult. So what are you going to do about this? Here's the bluntness. Buck up and move into relationships. Seriously. (laughs) I mean, what are we going to do? You're going to see hope evaporate if you're not relationally connected. That's the reality. And relationships are difficult. So we're going to have to buck up and move into a relationship and do the hard thing because it makes a difference. There are two things that God appears to have said about relationships in us. Number one is that the whole point of Christianity, the whole point, here, this is a big book, whole point is you being in a relationship with God. That's why it was written. 
so you can know that there's a God in the universe, not who's out there and sort of made you in some technical way, but there's a God in the universe who actually wants a relationship with you, who, who, who longs to be connected to you. That's the whole point of the book. These things are written that you may know you have eternal life, and that life is in his son. It was written so you could be relationally, deeply connected with the God of the universe. Marvelous, a stunning concept. And so the truth is, the core of hope for our lives is that. That there's never going to be a moment where God forsakes you. If you receive the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you believe that he came for you, if you believe that there's a barrier between you and him, if you believe that he died to overcome that, if you believe that he wants you, you'll never be disconnected from him, ever. See, the Christian hope is not, well, there's a God in the universe, so things will probably go okay. The Christian hope is, my God is ever in me, with me, and for me, and nothing can change that. Nothing. That's why there's hope. That's why there's hope when circumstances go sideways. That's why there's hope when there doesn't appear to be any answers to this situation. That's why there's hope when Paul is sitting in prison because God is never going to leave him and always is working to transform his life and to make him whole again. He's looking to do that in you as well. But then, the second thing God teaches about relationships is you got to have some others because you were made for connections. If you don't know that there are people, let me put it this way. There are some people in my life who know me really well. And so, you know, all bets are off. They actually, they're not being fooled. There's no facade. And they have told me, no matter what, they are for me. Doesn't mean they won't call me out. They have told me and I've looked in their eyes, I believe them. They will always be for me. They won't turn their back on me. 30 years ago, I would have told you that didn't matter. 20 years ago, I would have made that sound all flowery. Now, I don't know that I can live in hope without that. I don't know that I can live in hope without knowing that there are a handful of people who would go to the mat for me. My encouragement to you is you got to have that too. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to have it. But if you're going to live with hope, if you're going to be able to weather the ups and downs, the great successes and the, and the mundane moments and the down times of life well, you got to know that there's some people who will go to the mat for you no matter what. And that requires you to weigh in. It requires you to open your heart. It requires you to break through the difficult parts of relationships. Hope dies in isolation. It thrives in deep community. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be honest about our relationships, not to be flowery or superficial, but to realize that certainly they can be difficult. And if we weigh each instance on its own merit, we might often pull back from relationships that are difficult, including our relationship with you, and drop to superficiality. Lord, I, I pray that 
you would give us the heart, the soul, the wisdom to know that that way will never survive, that solitaire will never work, that we are made for one another and we were made for you. And if we will finish well, live powerfully in the things that matter most, we require connections. Give us the will to move heart, body, mind, and soul into those relationships where hope will be forged. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would please stand and receive the benediction. May you walk out today knowing because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I can say to you with absolute assurance that your God is in you and with you and for you. He loves you with a passion that won't end, and he went to great lengths to remind you of that over and over again, that he is your God. He will always have your back. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And now he has made a pathway for you to open up your life to deeper and richer connections with those around you in a way that fuels the hope, the power, and the beauty for your life. May you walk out today knowing the moment you receive Jesus, from that day and every day forward, you have the love of God your Father. You have the grace of Jesus that covers over all of your sin. You have the presence of his spirit in your life. Now go in peace.